therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition so you will not grow weary and lose heart. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm starting to wonder if I should grow out a mustache like Garrett because you guys gave him a nice round of applause when he worked, walked up here this morning. That was really nice. Um, Oh, thank you. No, that wasn't me just pandering. No, no. Hey, if you haven't given up yet on watching the news, it's been a pretty interesting couple weeks, hasn't it? Yeah, it really has been. Um, it was like uh, probably two weeks ago, we, we had this balloon floating over the country and fighter jets scrambled like something out of a, a movie and shot it down. Uh, we had these other smaller unidentified flying objects over uh, Lake Huron. Uh, what else have we had a, a tanker spill right in ohio we, we saw a lot of that on our news uh the eagles got the super bowl stolen from them we all saw that happen um and then of course on a not so funny note we also saw what happened um, at michigan state earlier this week and and i was getting text messages from a young lady who has friends that go there and, and showing pictures of of armed swat teams going dorm to dorm uh looking and uh, it, it broke our hearts. And the next morning when I woke up, and I you know, usually go to my social media and get updates on what happened, I, I saw one of our politicians in the state of Michigan decided to put out a, a formal thought on what we could do with our thoughts and prayers. I don't know if you saw that or not. I'm not going to repeat what he said, but it was not pleasant. And, and it, it got me a little bit upset. And, and that somebody would, would diminish our prayers that we offer for people this way. And, and when I get upset, I usually do one or two things. The first thing that I know I should do is I should pray, right? Uh, the second thing, my, my kind of um, fallback that I always go to, if you ask Linda, is whenever I'm in an awkward situation or I feel angry or upset, is I usually fall back on humor. Humor is a, a great emotion. So as I was being upset and I kept scrolling through my social media, I, I, I came upon a joke I want to share with you this morning. Okay, so, so you can share this as well, that when all the pressures and all the news of the world is bearing down on you, you can use my dad joke. Uh, you know, it goes like this. You know, Jesus is being taken out of a lot of places in our society, right? I mean, our schools, our courts, our politics. Did you hear about the, the newest thing, though, is they're trying to now keep Jesus out of jewelry stores. Yeah, they're afraid if he goes in, he might break every chain. Uh, Matt, I need rim shot. All right. <laughs> so, guys, I hope as we've been walking through the book of Hebrews, uh, what you have noticed at this point is this was never designed. That it was going to be a verse-by-verse -verse breakdown, you know, where we went every sentence and every word and every syllable of the book of Hebrews and, 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 and try to uh, go through the study that way. 
This study was designed to make sure that we saw the entire argument or the entire reason that the author penned the book of Hebrews in the big place or in the first place. We want to take in the big picture. And the truth is the big picture of the book of Hebrews is indeed the biggest of all of the pictures, right? It's that Christ is above all. It's that, that Christ is righteous. It's that Christ is our Savior. But what happens is, is when we go through a book of the Bible, and it's not a verse-by-verse a -verse study, it means that there sometimes are going to be passages that tend to get overlooked. And you will notice this sometimes, and I get that, and I appreciate it. I, I want to make sure you know we're not ever skipping over a particular passage because we think it's going to be too hard for us to understand. We're never skipping over a passage because we're a little bit too worried that it is going to be controversial. It's just that what we're trying to do in a three-month window, which we're actually halfway through today, is again to make sure you see the biggest picture that Christ is above all. Okay, so consider that my disclaimer here. But with that disclaimer, two weeks ago, uh, after we, we looked at chapter 5, I had uh, someone come up to me during our, our cookie and our coffee time, and, and very well-intentioned. I have no problems with this. If you guys ever have a question or you think we skipped over something, let me know. But, but he said, you know, well, what about verse 10 of chapter 5? What do you think about verse 10? Who, who is it that is being talked about in verse 10 of chapter 5? And, and if you want to flip there, great. If not, we are going to be in chapter 7 for most of the sermon today. But I'm going to read to you uh, verses 9 and 10 from chapter 5. It says this. It says, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Makes perfect sense, right? I mean, not a day goes by in your life where you don't think about Melchizedek, right? And this happens again at the end of chapter 6. Another passage that we did not touch on in our study of chapter 6 last week. Uh, in Hebrews 6, verses 19 through 20, it says this, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of, you guessed it, Melchizedek. So if you were keeping track, you are correct. Up to this point today in chapter 7, I have not said the name Melchizedek to you. Uh, in fact, if I go back and I look through my sermons, I've been here for almost a year. It means I've probably given about 50 of these messages or so to you. I'm willing to bet not one time in those previous 50 sermons have I used the word, the name, I should say, Melchizedek. I know there's going to be some of us here that, that know this man's backstory. But I'm also willing to bet that there's also some of us here who, while we may have heard that name in, in passing, the name, it really doesn't mean anything to you, right? You may recognize it as a name from the Old Testament, but beyond that, it does not mean anything. So, so we did not skip over Melchizedek in chapter 5 and the reference to him in chapter 6 because I don't think he is worth you understanding anything about. Again, we didn't skip over Melchizedek's name because I thought it was going to be too hard for anyone to understand. The, the truth is, we just simply skipped over those two references because I knew that we would be getting to chapter 7 today. I was dreading getting to chapter 7 a little bit because chapter 7 is all about Melchizedek. 
So in honor of those of you who keep hearing me say this name over and over again, I keep in mind that you know most of the big names from your Old Testament. I know you've been going to church for a long time. I know that we all know the Isaacs and the Jacobs, right? We know the, the Josephs and the, the Abrahams and the Moseses, or Moses I. I don't know how you're supposed to say that. And you may be willing to admit that you still have some things that you need to learn about these giants of the Old Testament, but you know the gist of their story. You, you know uh, why we refer to these gentlemen, but, but Melchizedek, for many of you, is different. There's not any songs that we, we sing in Sunday school about Melchizedek. There's no lessons about Melchizedek that you've been being taught in children's church, you know, since you were in kindergarten. Melchizedek is indeed a bit of a mystery. He's this riddle wrapped inside a conundrum, and there's really good reason why Melchizedek is such a mystery to us. Primarily because what we're going to read in Hebrews chapter 7 today is probably the most in-depth writing that we have about this man in our scripture. Right Outside of Hebrews, we primarily see Melchizedek mentioned only in two places. The first one is going to be in Psalm 110. Verse 4, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, that cleared everything up for you, right? No, it doesn't. So we have to go back to, to his origin story that we find in the book of Genesis. And we meet Melchizedek in the book of Genesis in chapter 14, in verses 17 through 20. Four verses. Here's what we know. It says, after his return from the, de the defeat of Cataleomer, the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, uh, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, he was a priest of the God Most High, and he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So here's what we know about Melchizedek, what we, we learn in those four short verses. We, we find out, first off, when did he live? He, he lived a long time ago. He, he lived in the time of Abraham. In fact, he goes so far back that Abraham isn't even yet called Abraham. He's still referred to as Abram. Going forward, you'll probably just hear me say Abraham because it's easy for me to remember. Um, but he's also, he's given a title here. He's referred to as the King of Salem. Now, we, we still have disagreements as to where exactly Salem was even located at today, but we're told Melchizedek was the King of Salem. We know that he brings Abraham bread and wine af after a battle. We're told that he was a priest of the Lord Most High, and that Abraham essentially tithed to Melchizedek 10% of the spoils of war. That's what Genesis tells us about this man. But throughout history, people have not been very shy to, to take that account in Genesis, and then themselves try to kind of fill in the blanks to tell us a little bit more about who Melchizedek might be. I think that's kind of in our nature, isn't it? Right, last week when you heard about unidentified flying objects over Lake Huron, right, many people just jumped to the conclusion, filled in the blanks for themselves, well, this is the alien invasion, it's finally happening. Right, we have a tendency to do these things. So before we ask the question, who is Melchizedek, 
before we even see what the author of Hebrews has to say about why Melchizedek is important, I thought it would be interesting if you heard some of the theories that men have come up with over time as to who Melchizedek is. Hear how they've kind of filled in some of these blanks for us. Now, I'm not endorsing any of these ideas, keep in mind. Um, in fact, what I really hope that you come away with as we talk about some of these theories as to who Melchizedek is, is that you start to realize that the, the identity or the origin story of this mystery man, that that's not what is actually important about his story. See, what, what is important, what we're going to see is, is why the author of Hebrews uh, uh, includes him in his letter here, is that we need to be able to compare and contrast this Melchizedek character to our high priest, Jesus Christ. But again, thousands of years people have been asking, who? And, and for a, a long time, people have come up with all these different theories. So, so here's four of them, okay? Uh, the first one, uh, this is the one I was actually asked about two weeks ago, is, is that Melchizedek is actually a nickname for Shem. And if Shem sounds familiar to you, that's because Shem is one of the sons of Noah, okay? Um, you got to remember, people born after the flood were given a cap on their length of life, but people born before the flood, they lived considerably longer. So they say that, that after the flood, Shem became Melchizedek. One problem with this theory is it really did not become popular until a very long time later, after the exile to Babylon, when the second temple was constructed, and it, it became popular as the, the, the temple priests tried to justify and unwrap why they could still continue to receive tithe and offerings from the people, even though the presence of God no longer dwelled within their building. And then they use this example of this Melchizedek character who received a tithe outside of the law as a reason why they could as well. And perhaps this theory is right. I know it's been talked about here in the past, uh, before my time. Maybe Melchizedek can be tied all the way back to the flood. My common sense kind of tells me it's a really weird thing to go from the name Shem and then get a nickname of Melchizedek. I think Shem was already pretty easy for us to remember, so I don't know. Um, there's another theory as to who Melchizedek is that tells us that, that Melchizedek is Jesus Christ in another form. Uh, similar to when we went through the book of Daniel and, and we looked at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and that fourth man who appeared in the furnace and saved them. How many feel that that is, was, was Jesus coming to earth to, to free those men, that this Melchizedek character was also Jesus in another form? And they justify this by saying, well, look, he brought bread and wine, right? A precursor to the communion that we all share today. Um, I found some other schools of thought that will teach you that Melchizedek is actually another name for the archangel uh, Michael. Could be. But the fourth theory, the fourth theory is the most entertaining. I almost, say, I almost said it's the best, and I don't want to say it's the best because I'm not saying I believe it, but it is the most entertaining theory that people have filled in the most blanks for. Uh, it's one of these theories where you kind of have to you know, buckle up, hold on to your hats a little bit because it will get a little crazy. And this account comes from ancient writings that are non-biblical. Right? These are Jewish writings uh, that, that kind of blend history and tall tales, right? They take history and they add in a little Paul Bunyan and Babe the Blue Ox into them a little bit. But, but in this story, uh, what they say is that Melchizedek was born of a virgin. Sound familiar? And, and the virgin who bore him, her name was Sophonim. 
And Sophonim was married to Ner, Ner being Noah's brother. And this all happens pre-flood. The story takes a really sad turn because Sophonim dies while she's still pregnant. And when they come to check on her body, what they find is that this baby, Melchizedek, bore himself. That he's sitting on the bed next to his mother, fully clothed, fully developed, uh, that he's able to speak, that he's praising God, that he has a priestly birthmark. They say he even came out of the womb circumcised already. Uh, So this baby was delivered with no assembly, or I should say no disassembly required. And 40 days after this miraculous birth, Gabriel, not Michael anymore, Gabriel shows up and he takes Melchizedek away to live in the Garden of Eden so that he would survive the flood even though he wasn't on the ark. All of these are theories that people have presented over the years as to who Melchizedek is. But after praying over chapter 7, after reading commentaries on this chapter, it became very clear that we're asking the wrong question when we, when we ask, who is Melchizedek? The question that we should have been asking all along is why, right? Why Melchizedek? Why are those four verses even there in Genesis chapter 14? Why did God make sure that this was included in his word for us? Why would God want us to be made aware of a priest who existed outside of of the law? We have to remember when this happens with Abraham, we're still about 500 years away from the time period where where Aaron would be named the high priest and before the the Levites would be tasked with this duty of of, of maintaining the priesthood. So why is the answer that we must get from chapter 7? Not who, but why. We start to get that answer today as we open chapter 7. And we're going to look at the first three verses here. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, And then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. So we get a little bit more information about this Melchizedek. We do get a recap of what we were already told in the Genesis account. And then we learn a little bit more. We learned that this, this title that he has, that it translates to the king of righteousness or the king of peace. Two very nice titles to have if you're going to have a title. It reminds us that in the Genesis account, he is without father or mother or genealogy. Right? We're not told anything about a beginning or an end to his life. And when we read that, we can obviously see why people would jump to the conclusions that this this character is some sort of supernatural being. But I really don't think that's what is being said here in Hebrews. What the author of Hebrews is saying is just a reminder that the biblical account that we are given, that it gives us no info about Melchizedek's genealogy, no information about his birth, no information about his death, and, and that does stand out as a little different. Because with most of our Old Testament characters, right, the Old Testament loves to tell us who begot who, doesn't it? There's pages and pages of begots. And to the priesthood, 
Right? To the Levitical priesthood, there was nothing more important than to make sure that someone was of the proper genealogy, the proper descent, in order to hold their office. Right? But not Melchizedek. For Melchizedek, who bore him, had nothing to do with his qualifications to be a priest. Melchizedek was certainly not of the tribe of Levi, because the tribe of Levi did not even exist yet. But what the author tells us is, again, not the answer to who, but it tells us the answer to why. And from here, the rest of the chapter is just going to expound and build this case as to why. The why that he tells us here is it says, resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. And the word that we actually translate here to say resembling really truly has an even deeper meaning. Because when we, we use the word resembling, we, we start to think that, that this Melchizedek was a carbon copy of Jesus Christ. Right? Or again, we can get the false impression that, that maybe he was divine as Christ was. What the word actually implies that we translate as resembling, it, it means more that something is a model of what is to come. But when we think of a model, what a model is, is is usually a lesser copy of an original. Interestingly enough here, what we see, though, is that the model is coming before the original. It's a little bit different. When I was a young kid, if I got a model car, I probably picked that model car in particular because I saw the real thing first. I saw the car, and it was pretty, and it was red, and it looked like it would be really fast, but as a nine-year-old kid... I couldn't afford the real thing, so I was willing to settle for something lesser. I was willing to settle for a model of the original, hoping maybe one day I would be able to have the real thing. In this case, what we see, though, is that the model comes first. And in this case, the model comes first so that we can have a glimpse as to what we might be able to obtain when the real thing would come to us. The author continues in verses 4 through 10. He says, See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. That section is a little bit confusing, and it's a little bit of a a tongue twister. He's saying Abraham is the father of the Israelites. Therefore, as the father of the Israelites, he is by necessity also the forefather of the priesthood. Because of this, what we witnessed in Genesis was the Levites, these priests of a lesser type or origin, a type that was based upon genealogy, We saw them paying tithes or making an offering to a priest of a higher order. Abraham, serving as a representative for the Levites, who would be his offspring, makes an offering to Melchizedek. 
And in return, Melchizedek blesses Abraham. In verse 7, it says it's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. It's pretty clear that what the author is saying is that the priestly order of Melchizedek, who we know nothing about his genealogy, right? we can't prove that anything exists outside, or we can say does, I should say, exist completely outside of the norms of, of what we know about the priesthood. It says that he is greater than or superior to the priests that are appointed from the Levites. We continue verses 11 through 17. says, Now if perfection had been obtainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar, for it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a high priest forever." after the order of Melchizedek. Remember Melchizedek, and at this point I wish his name was Shem, because it would have been much easier if I could just keep saying Shem. Okay, remember Melchizedek exists because he has a glimpse into what would come. As the people read this letter in Hebrews, they are reminded of the fact that the, the priesthood which, mind you, by this point in history has already been completely messed up. It's been completely taken away and, and, and just kind of bastardized away from what the, the Levites uh, had intended it to be years and years ago. But it was still something that, that many people held, held to very tightly. They, right, they still clung to it. But this priesthood that so many people clung to was helplessly futile. This is the same thing that so many of them were soon going to be tempted to, to fall back to. They were going to fall back upon it because it's what they knew before they met Christ, and it was worthless and futile. Because what the author says is if it would have worked, then there would have been no need for something new. There would have been no need for another high priest to arise from the order of Melchizedek. Why do we need a Messiah... If a priest who came from the line of Aaron, or, or any man for that matter, could actually do the job. See, the people needed to be reminded that, that Melchizedek, he didn't come from any of the twelve tribes. But God still called him a priest. Abraham still offered him tithes. They need to be reminded that now that the original had come, that they also should not be surprised that, that as our high priest, he also does not come from the right tribe. He says, Moses never called anyone of the tribe of Judah to be priest. Verses 18 and 19 says, For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. 
And to a lot of people back then, those would have been fighting words. And I do, I kind of like it when my Bible has some fighting words in it. But, but, but we have to be careful, because he's not saying that the law given to Moses by God, that it did not do a good enough job. What he is telling them, it, it, he's reminding them, I should say, of what the true purpose of the law was always intended to be. And he's saying that it's now set aside because something new has come. What we're being asked to remember, along with the readers of this letter, is that the law made no one perfect. We're asked to remember that perf perfect or perfection, that that is the standard that we are being called to. He's reminding us that the true purpose of the law is simply to hold a mirror up to every man and every woman's face so that we can recognize clearly how imperfect we are. See, we have to see that in order for us to confess the fact that we are broken, that we are sinners, that we need something to come and desperately save us. The, the law set an insanely high standard. And it didn't set these, these very high standards so that only a select few would be able to clear the hurdle. That wasn't the reason. The, the reason the standard was so high was so that the masses would have to acknowledge that even their, their best attempt would always fall horrifically short. But now a better hope has been given to us. The, the author tells us a new high priest who is righteousness and peace personified has come. And he's someone that is qualified for the job, for the mantle that he is taking up, not based upon his tribe, not based upon his, his genealogy, but it's based upon his worthiness alone. And everything that you've listened to me say so far, in truth, it all, all leads up to just one little verse here. Everything that I've blabbered on about Melchizedek up to this point, it comes down to nine words. It's these nine words that we're going to read next from Scripture that, that tell us the why of Melchizedek's story. The who of his story, if I'm honest with you, I might never know. I'm not really too interested in investing any more of my brain power to try to figure that part out. But verse 22, it tells me everything I need to know because it tells me the why. Verse 22 says, This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The whole sermon comes down to those nine words. Uh, I, I've spoken over 3,000 words to you at this point, but, but these nine are the ones that you must remember. These nine tell you why. It all comes together. The, the focus becomes very clear with that one word, guarantor. We're reminded that the law made nothing per, uh, perfect. We establish that we need a better covenant a new law, and along with a new law, what we also need is a new priest. And that priest is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We've talked about him week after week as being this guarantor of this new covenant. The, the word guarantor, again, has so much weight, so much importance hanging on that one word. Uh, the, the word in Greek is engios. And it's another example that we keep finding as we walk through Hebrews of these Greek words that are found nowhere else in Scripture. There's nowhere else in the New Testament where that word engios is going to be used. 
In the English Standard Version that I read from, it, it, it translates that word as guarantor. Some translations you may be looking at say the word surety. But this Greek word that's only used here in the New Testament and nowhere else, it was used a lot in, in, in business life at that time. It was used very often in legal documents in the ancient world. This is also a good point where I usually get to the place where I like to ask you a question and have you raise your hand to make sure you're awake. Uh, I'm going to ask a question, but I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand today. Um, because my mom is here, and if she raises her hand and says yes to this question, it might just completely destroy my whole vision of my childhood. So you don't have to raise your hand to this one. Um, has anyone ever had someone ha have to had some... Whew. Let's take a drink before we ask the question here. <clears throat> has anyone ever had to have someone come and bail them out of jail? Jim, I said, don't raise your hand. Oh, Jim. I haven't. I know I raised my hand, but I haven't. I don't want you thinking anything bad about me. Um, I, again, I've never actually had to be bailed out of jail, but I've watched enough television that I think I kind of have a general idea of how the system works, right? Um, I get arrested, and I'm accused of a crime. Innocent or guilty yet, we don't know, but I stand accused. And I get locked up in a jail cell while I await for my trial. Now, if I want to be freed from that jail cell while I'm awaiting judgment, what I have to do is I have to post bond or I have to pay bail. And bail is this dollar amount that must be paid in order for me to be able to live as a free man. And the dollar amount of my bail is traditionally going to be in relation to the crime I commit. Right? And also, traditionally, the courts probably want to see my bail set high. And me, who wants to be free, I want to see my bail set very, very low. The lower the bail, the better chance I have that I'm going to clear that hurdle and be able to get out of my cell. But if the bail is set at an amount that I cannot afford, I sit in jail. Unless there is someone who is willing to come and post bond for me. Right? Someone who would have greater means than myself. Right? They don't just get to walk up to the police station you know, with a nice smile and their good looks and say, can, can we let Daniel out of jail? That's not how it works. Where my funds were insufficient, they must be able to satisfy the court's requirement. Right? They have to be willing to pay for my freedom. They have to be willing to put their money on the line, because, maybe because they believe in my innocence. Or maybe whether they do or not, maybe it's just because they love me. But they're willing to risk something valuable for me. And this is where we see this word, Engios used in Greek most often. It's in legal documents when it refers to bail or a pledge being given. See, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the model shown to us in Melchizedek. Jesus Christ is the one that came and paid my bail. The, the law, they had me dead to rights. All of the evidence, a mountain of evidence, pointed to the fact that I was guilty. It would all lead to one day he who sits in judgment looking at me and telling me that I was guilty. And, and, and I had bail set for me, but the bail amount that was set, it was set at perfection. Per perfection would be a life without sin under the law. No failures, no lapses. And as I looked at the evidence against me, what I saw is that there were more infractions under the law than I could ever possibly count. We talked about this last week, of sinners, I am the foremost. 
I desperately wanted to get out of that jail cell, though, so I, I checked my pockets, and there was no perfection to be found. So next, I pulled out my handy-dandy Super Mario Brothers wallet, seeing if maybe I had any perfection to pay my bail. There's $13 in here, but there's no perfection. When that didn't work, I even called Chase Bank. I, I, I wanted to see maybe would they have some perfection that they'd be willing to lend me so that I could, I could get out and I could experience freedom, and, and Chase Bank denied me for that loan. But Jesus Christ, he stepped in and paid my bond. He paid many of yours as well. And any who he has not, he has enough perfection to go around that he will pay yours this morning as well. When he stepped in, he offered me something new. He offered me a, a better covenant. And what it took was first me admitting that my pockets were indeed empty. That there was no, none of Daniel's perfection that would ever set me free. I, I was told I need to repent of my sins. Acknowledge them, recognize them, flee from them. That I needed to, to declare with my mouth that Jesus Christ was my Lord and I needed to be baptized and born again. And when I did that, my debt was paid. See, Jesus Christ came and he answered to the court so that I did not have to. And I know that there's probably someone, whether here today or at home, who's still sitting, cowering in the corner of a jail cell, being constantly reminded of failure, being constantly reminded of all the times that they failed to clear that hurdle, that's desperately digging through their pockets and their wallets and trying to find, is there any way that I can pay my way out of here? Is there any way I can be set free? But the voice of fear, the voice of discouragement, the lies of our enemy, they, they keep us sitting in our prison cell, too afraid to just simply stand up and do the simple thing that is commanded of us in God's word if we want to be set free. And if that is you, if you've spent too many years sitting in a jail cell thinking that you are going to always fall short, the good news of Jesus Christ, our new high priest from the order of Melchizedek, is that you do not have to wait any longer. Your bail is posted. The door is open. And at this point, it's purely up to you if you will decide to get out, get up and walk into freedom. Today is the day that you can stand up you can come forward and confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord. You can be baptized. You can be set free for the rest of your life here on this earth, and you can enjoy the peace and comfort of knowing that your eternity in heaven with the Father is assured. Pray with me.